need to let go of the idea that we are going to hold hands, bring people together and sing Kumbaya. Like sometimes that will happen, but often, especially with the big stuff, like really big stuff, collective trauma, racism, genocide, often that will not happen in the way we think. And we need to let go of this idea that alternative dispute resolution will in some way prevent the scary thing from being said or prevent the scary thing from happening. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Kai Cheng Tom. Kai is a Canadian writer, social worker, and meditation teacher who does a lot of work around conflict and trauma. She's the author of a number of books, including an award-winning collection of essays titled, I Hope We Choose Love, A Trans Girl's Notes from the End of the World. As you'll hear in our conversation, Kai integrates a lot of trauma theory into her work around conflict mediation, specifically the window of tolerance, which comes up a lot in trauma-sensitive mindfulness. She talks about the ways that our trauma responses can limit our ability to really hear one another during conflict and ultimately make room for complexity and nuance. You'll hear us talk about the impact that trauma can have on groups that are in conflict and the role that mindfulness can play strategies that support people's window of tolerance during a conflict, non-pathologizing approaches to conflict resolution that also integrate mindfulness, and also a meditation practice for working with contradictions. I really enjoyed getting to meet Kai and talk to her about her work and her thinking, and I'm glad to bring this conversation to you. So without further ado, here is Kai Cheng Tan. I am here with Kai Cheng Tan. Kai, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited. I had, a, I had a couple people that had suggested your work, and I've been really excited about the different um, intersections that you've been working around and kind of the maps that you've been creating. So I'm excited to get to talk to you about it and learn more about you and your work. And I'm wondering if you could, we could just start with you letting people whatever you want them to know about um, kind of where you're coming from and how you're spending your time these days just to as a way to start the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me on. What do I want people to know about me? I always joke that like, I don't want people to know much about me, but then that is totally <laughs> belied by the fact that I am all over the freaking internet. So yes, this is true. Uh, you know, I'm one of those people, <laughs> there's two parts of me and one of them wants to live in a, in like a hut in the woods. And then another part wants to be Madonna. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, I'm a somatic coach and conflict resolution practitioner. I come to that very weird set of professions through a similarly weird trajectory of um, being a former clinical social worker and also an author and a like, community organizer, facilitator, like basically, you know, millennial jobs. I've had all the millennial jobs that are sort of loosely human service oriented, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, that that's so people can have a sense of who I am. I mean, what I actually do is I write books. Um, I've written books in like a whole bunch of genres and I intend to write books in more. So I've got like a children's book and a poetry book and a, a book of essays on transformative justice and some other books. But the transformative justice essay collection is probably where we should start for this podcast um, because I know you're interested in talking about, yeah, the, the sort of mapping graphics I've been doing on Instagram and my most sort of recent 
project is setting up a business as as I said, like a conflict resolution practitioner. So that's mediating conflicts in sort of a traditional sense, but also doing a lot of one-on-one conflict coaching, like helping people work through specific conflicts in their lives and other forms of conflict resolution that are not uh, formal mediation, but maybe look more like, like restorative processes or transformative processes. And there's a whole backstory behind that, but that's, that's what I am. That's a great great story. I mean, that's definitely one of the, when I saw the different intersections and bridges that you were making, it's cool to hear a little bit about kind of your background, where you're coming from. And, and yes, I definitely wanted to talk about your conflict resolution work, um, primarily because you, you had look like, you know, an analysis around trauma and how trauma impacts conflict, how that's playing out with individuals um, and or smaller groups and also larger groups. And then also it sounded like, you know, part of the river in was also around being a meditation teacher. And so I got so curious, just given now and given the moment that we're in the intense levels of polarization, often in political spaces or spaces more generally, yeah, I just wanted to get to talk to you about how are you thinking about um, all those paths coming together? And I don't even know where to start. Maybe as a way to start here, could you talk a little bit about where you see trauma? How does trauma relate to conflict? Like where where do oh you see gosh. it? I know it's a, it's a big one to start, but I've seen you thinking about this. Like what is trauma? Totally. Where does it limit it? What does it make possible? Or where does it um, limit us around conflict? Uh, I mean, can I just say I'm so grateful that you are interested in like the deeply nerdy work that is my yeah, life totally. right now. So thank you for this no, deeply nerdy question that I adore. And yeah, so I got into conflict work uh, actually because I was uh, previously a trauma worker, right? So I spent my whole social work career in the public sector. In Canada, it's, it's actually not as common for social workers to be in private practice. Um, so, you know, most of us are in the public service. And I particularly was in an agency where um, all of my clients were young transgender people, uh, which is a pretty cool position to be in, actually, especially in Canada, where like that kind of position is rare. I think it actually Mm -hmm. is in America too, everywhere. Anyway, all of my clients were showing up and because it was a public agency, the service was free um, and we prioritized folks who were marginalized in terms of access. So all that is to say, most of the youth that I was working with were marginally housed or homeless or struggled with their families at home. And all of them, I would say, maybe, you know, excepting two or three, had brought in some trauma, um, mm. pretty serious trauma in a lot of cases, um, both shock trauma, developmental trauma, complex trauma. Um, that's not even to speak of collective trauma, right? And um, they brought many things, um, but something that caught my attention because it echoed with my own personal life as a transgender person living in trans community uh, was they brought in their conflicts, um, often with each other. <laughs> Uh, And sometimes in exploring conflict with my clients, I would hear about a conflict they were having and it was with another client of mine, Uh, you know, sort of that awkward, like, oh, okay, uh, one has uh, (laughs) in the therapeutic situation. And um, I noticed that these teenagers, because they were all teenagers, mostly their conflicts really fascinatingly mirrored conflicts that I was having with my quote unquote adult peers Mm -hmm. in the nonprofit world, in my personal life. And, you know, that's complex, but I sort of boil it down to this question of why are queers so mean to each other? Like, why are we so mean? And I wrote an article (laughs) titled that and it went 
uh, went surprisingly viral slash unsurprisingly viral. So why are we mean to each other? Because of trauma. Hmm. Um, this is my this is you know my hypothesis, but I don't think I'm alone in this. I think most of us engaged in this sort of interpersonal neurobiological assessment of trauma now, like looking through the lens of uh, Dan Siegel and Pat Ogden and Bessel van der Kolk and Pete Levine. You know, I could go on. Lots yeah. of white people talking yeah. about uh, nervous system cycles and all that stuff. We so we were familiar that with uh, most many of us with the now that the framework of trauma could be seen as well. So the body detects or perceives life-threatening stress, um, uh, you know, throughout much of one's uh, daytime, waking time, and sleeping time. If one is traumatized, and I would argue that many of us, most of us, are traumatized in the queer and trans community. So of course, uh, you know, we might go into a survival response or a series of survival responses. Um, and there's all kinds of, you know, like brain explanations for this, but the long and short of it is that we are, that physiologically our, our capacity for um, slower thinking, executive function, and crucially relational uh, affect is, is, is shut off. So instead we're in fight or flight or submit, collapse, feign death, spawn, whatever, you know, words we're using for those survival responses in their many various forms. And they, they look pretty different, all those uh, survival responses, but one key element of them is that relational aspect is turned off. Hmm. So when we're doing conflict, particularly conflict that is highly relational in nature, between lovers, between friends, between partners, between coworkers, and we're in a fight or flight, freeze, submit, feign death, fawn space, we lose the capacity to be curious and compassionate as a physiological basis for survival. And I, when I do workshops, um, and I do many of these days on conflict, I like to ask um, participants, you know, raise your hand if when you're in a conflict, you feel like you are dying. Hmm. Almost everybody raises their hand, right? right? Whether or not the conflict is truly life-threatening, we tend to feel like we are dying. Um, and I think that's a pretty, in many ways, a healthy physiological response where trauma comes in is that we are unable to moderate it. We're not we're mm -hmm. not able to apply like the break mechanism or the slowing down mechanism. We are often not socialized, we're not conditioned to use any kind of nervous system holding. I don't like that word regulation, but you know, nervous system regulation mm -hmm. or emotional um, solution finding tools that uh, might be helpful. We are taught sometimes like, oh, count to 10, you know, when you're angry or take a walk. And those are not bad advice, but they don't take into like the, uh, into account the full intensity of a traumatized person really thinking my life is going to be over because of this minor conflict or maybe serious conflict, right? right. And um, in our attempt to discharge that anxiety, the traumatized anxiety, right, to get to safety and the conflict, we often do things from an embodied place of like um, of extreme distress that do uh, like that that does like bring our anxiety to the end, to an end temporarily, but then maybe cre creates escalation in the conflict. So a great example of that is, you know, when I get in a fight with uh, my partner, it's pretty common for me just to shut down and walk away, and that's mm -hmm. a great response when mm -hmm. I don't want to have this terror that intimacy is going to destroy me. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it, of course, prolongs the conflict in my partner's mind and in the field between us if one is in a conflict about racism in the workplace and one has been accused of racism. Sure. We might, yeah. in a desperate attempt to relieve ourselves of the anxiety of being called racist, you know, either flip out and get defensive, or we might do like a performative kind of change thing where we... We say, yes, I've been racist and I'll do anything you say. And please, please make me a good person again, um, which actually isn't a solution either. 
I see you want to jump in there. I so. do. I want to jump. There's so many different pieces here that I want to unpack with you. Uh, and it sounds like I'm imagining one of the places that you would be, well, I'll get curious here about in the moments that people are hitting a survival response or if, if trauma is really present, as you said, it's so hard to, you know, use I statements or uh, it's, it's really difficult to do conflict when we're in that survival response. So I imagine part of what you're then helping individuals and groups with is that moment when they're in a, a a survival-based response that might be connected to trauma and all the different tools that you bring in there as opposed to just count to 10, like that there would be a lot of different yeah. tools. So I'm wondering if you could, I, I want to talk about those tools with you and also the map. I want to talk about, as you said, with Levine and Ogden, where would you put, where would mindfulness and meditation, just because the audience, there'll be a lot of people who that's their primary focus. Where does that all fit in? Or could you connect some dots there about um, does it help and where would it help if so? Absolutely. So this is new terrain for me. Like I'm exploring, does meditation and mindfulness fit into conflict resolution? I think it does. Great. Um, and primarily I want to say like, um, in no small part, because many great meditation lineages and teachers have included an enormous component of conflict resolution in their, in their teachings directly. Right. So uh, I actually many, didn't know that. yeah, like, which, yeah, I didn't actually know that. I hadn't thought of it that way. Like can, what, what kind of traditions or what would you, Oh, well, I'm Actually, so, you know, most of the meditation techniques I've studied come from like a Buddhist tradition. And I imagine sure. you're familiar, <laughs> perhaps more than I, with many Buddhist traditions. Um, but I'm thinking particularly about um, like folks like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and his um, beginning a new process. Um, or... I don't know it, actually. I've heard of it. I don't, I don't know that process, but I'm super curious to, maybe we don't, I don't know if we want to go down this road, but oh, we can it's always, um, yeah. I love learning about the different traditions that have conflict been baked in. Sometimes people will go, you know, you're here, you are coming with a trauma lens, which is great to look at say Buddhist or contemplative practice. And then it turns out that there was many different lists and many different teachings yes. in different traditions. And it's not like we're reinventing a wheel. It's a particular lens. So anyway, I'm just always curious to hear, you know, new practices. So yeah, if you want to give us an example, that'd be great. Oh, sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm still seeking training right now. I'm like, I'm just at the beginning of beginning a new, uh, my beginning new sort of training, but also there's a book <laughs> that uh, for folks can purchase on it. It's a great read, very simple, very fast and yet profound, of course, in Thich Nhat Hanh's way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an example of a practice that is built into uh, this Buddhist lineage that is about conflict resolution. And it's a pretty um, like everyday use practical framework, actually, because it is about so there's a kind of a three step process to it. Right. And there's this idea that we want to um, like I'm going to get the terminology wrong here, but we want to kind of um, acknowledge what is good. <laughs> <laughs> bring skillfully like a critique not a, i don't think that would be the word used like bring skillfully like an awareness a perception of what is bad and then sort of come to um like a compassionate understanding of where the middle is that's great, that's great. and hugging meditation as a somatic practice is sort of woven into oh wow yeah yeah wow. so that you know i think there are many different older buddhist traditions that are woven into this sort of newer practice that's coming up but for meditators who are kind of more of a Western tradition, like I think a lot about uh, like the um, Tarbrach's reign. So I'm going to get the terminology wrong here. So I'm not going to try to deep unpack that as that um, acronym, um, but just these practices of acknowledging our emotions mm-hmm. and welcoming the insight that they bring, 
tending to ourselves with loving kindness and then um, and then attending to others with loving kindness. I should say also a huge inspiration for me in my conflict resolution work is the practice of loving kindness meditation. Um, just this, um, just this uh, capacity to do a dual awareness of um, kindness for oneself <laughs> and yeah. compassion for oneself and loving um, kindness and compassion for the other simultaneously is That's key, great. I think, to yeah. conflict resolution. And that for me is where um, like any meditator or mindfulness practitioner can start to apply their current practice to conflict resolution, because I think that is the first thing to go. When we are mm. in a conflict, in a life or death state, we lose loving kindness, not just for the other person, but also for ourselves. Um, and yeah. so, you know, and I've seen like, you know, meditators of 20 years, right? Meditation teachers actually completely lose this ability in, uh, in conflict. Totally. So, you know, there's something there maybe about turning our attention, the attention of our practice to that. I want to pause because you might I'm, do, the, yeah. I'm the same. Well, I'm, I've, I've had this experience on retreats where I do, you know, say just even a weekend I had, I got to do a day long or a weekend and I feel so connected to myself and then a conflict happens and it's like all, it just goes out the window on some oh, level. <laughs> and, and I do, I just, I just to uh, build on what you said, I, I have the experience when I'm been involved in a conflict or conflict work that the people who have been practicing meditation or, or doing a mindfulness practice on some level, they seem to have a very helpful superpower of noting when they've gone into a survival response or when they can have that space that goes, you know what, I'm a, I'm very close to leaving the room yeah. or I'm about, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like it's a very helpful just to get that little bit of space from the intense emotions um, that can be a bit of a superpower. So I don't know if that's similar to what you're saying, but. Oh no, absolutely. The ability to observe <laughs> one's behavior, right. which of course we cultivate so much in, in many different meditation practices is key um, to conflict resolution. And then I think the advanced step or, you know, what I might call a further step into that is observing with curiosity what is happening in oneself. Like, why am I doing that? Right. Um, and, and then, you know, another layer is then the dual awareness piece. What is the other person doing? Why are they doing that? And I think now this, the next thing I'm going to say is probably more of like a psychotherapy thing, but why are they doing that? in a non-anxious way. So very easy for me to turn to my parents who I'm always in conflict with. And I'm like, why do you behave this way? Um, in this anxious, like, I need to know, like, I need to know if you still love me, as opposed to the um, curiosity that is right. non-anxious, right? That is compassionate right. instead. Right. Oh, that's such a different, I know that place in me where I'm actually genuinely curious about a difficult emotion that I'm having or someone else is having. And that seems to open a lot of space for conflict to actually happen. Absolutely. Maybe this might be a good bridge into one of the maps that mm -hmm. or models that I've seen that you were creating and I think putting out there as a way to just try out some different ideas. And that was around the working with the window of tolerance, yes. um, which I think you talked about as the window of transformation. That's right. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I love when I saw this, I thought, I have to talk to Kai. I have to, <laughs> I want to know again, as you're mapping it on, I've been in so many different spaces where with the best of intention, we're coming to do some work around say trauma healing or even working around racial justice. And the room gets to a point where it, it can't stay in a window and it ends up in some, we end up out of our window, I'd say, yeah. mm -hmm. and it creates a lot of difficulty. So I'm wondering if you could 
talk about this window of transformation and how you're thinking about it with conflict. Totally. Yeah. So there will be a um, like a photo of the window of transformation for folks uh, who are listening to this. Yeah. So the window of transformation is basically an adaptation of Pat Ogden and Dan Siegel's window of tolerance. And to really quickly recap that, um, Siegel and Ogden kind of posit that um, all human beings have a certain window or threshold of um, what might be called optimal nervous system arousal. So within this um, a sort of level of nervous system arousal within the window, we have access to um, our emotions and we're also able to um, be regulated, which is to say we're, we're able to sort of do metacognition, like think about our emotions, be curious about ourselves, be curious about the other. We are basically, it's basically the state of being okay enough, right? I feel like it's also the place for mindfulness. It's, yes. it's also easier yes. to create, just to practice mindfulness in the window. So, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, I think um, the ability to have mindfulness would be like maybe one of those sort of uh, key indicators that we are, are yeah. in our window. Yeah? Yeah, definitely. And then outside the window are levels of nervous system activation where we are in a survival response, where the stress we're detecting um, either in our external environment or that's coming from an internal felt sense or both is causing us to have a fight or flight response, which might be considered hyperarousal, a lot of sympathetic um, nervous system energy that moving, running, fighting, screaming, crying, rage, panic, um, or uh, a different kind of survival response that would be, you know, maybe considered a freeze or collapse, um, a lot of parasympathetic activation, but also some sympathetic activation at the same time and um, feeling numb, bored, detached, playing dead, like also, you know, very effective survival strategy. So that's getting so popular these days in like the mindfulness and somatics and psychotherapy worlds. I wanted to use that um, really effective framing of how uh, that explains how people are in a non-pathologizing way for conflict. And so the window of transformation is um, basically just suggesting that when we're in our window of tolerance, we're also in a window of transformation, which means that we are capable of change. Why is this important for conflict? Because when we are in any conflict, this is my theory now, when we're in any conflict, but particularly political or spiritual or intimate conflict, what we're doing is we are asking the person or persons that we are in conflict with to change, to transform. So if I'm having an argument of racism, I want the other person to change and not be racist. You know, maybe they're wanting me to change and allow them to be racist, right? This kind of thing. And to do effective relational conflict, I believe that we need to be in our window of transformation. When we are above in that fight or flight space, um, hyper aroused, I am um, hypothesizing that we are doing um, like an aggressive mode to conflict resolution or an evasive mode. So we are, we start, um, we, we, we become heated up. And our, um, mm -hmm. our mindset starts to follow our body state into this place of thinking the other person must be destroyed or I will be destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. And it's them or me. Mm -hmm. That's like a survival response, it sounds like. Exactly. And that's yeah. trauma, right? So the trauma right. thinking of uh, black or white, this or that, good right. or evil. Yeah. And, you know, the corresponding hypo arousal, arousal response, um, you know, freeze or submit could be understood in, in terms of conflict as performative change, like the submission, yes, I'll do anything you say just to get out of trouble. Yes, I will do anything just to be considered good again, to release my shame. And then if we drop far enough into hypoarousal, we might actually just detach from the conflict 
entirely. You've probably seen the, this in the rooms you've been in, right? People just sort of turn off and stop caring. And then we might loop all the way around, right? If we're pushed so far into hypoarousal that we start to feel really identified with um, being victimized, then we might swing into that aggressive while the other person should be destroyed. So that's where mindfulness, I think, comes in again is knowing <laughs> where yeah. am I, you know, in relation to my window of transformation. Mm-hmm. And then the second piece I think that is key is expanding the window of transformation so that we're able to hold big feelings and big responses. Because I think what we're seeing now, particularly in terms of racial justice, is people saying, well, I can't engage in this conversation because it's so scary and people are so mad. But of course, people are going to be mad because there's a, you know, a few hundred, if not a thousand or more years of collective trauma. So we're going to be angry. And I think something key about somatics is that we need to be able to expand our windows to include a certain amount of fight, flight, freeze response, as opposed to saying we should never go into those because that's not okay. That's great. I have the experience. First of all, I love that map and I'm excited to, as you said, geek out about it and talk about how that works in groups. I, my experience I'm wondering if this is similar for you in the with the people you're working with or groups that you're in, is that it's often much slower than both I expect and that I think a lot of people would want in the group. Mm-hmm. That that there's like if we're really trying to, as you're saying, stay within a window where transformation becomes possible. And as you said, there's gonna be big stuff in the room, especially if we're talking about, say, racism, for example, like the historical trauma will be there for everyone on some level with white supremacy, but especially folks of color that have been targeted. Mm-hmm. And that and that it's like, you know, that feeling where one word, one sentence, even one nonverbal uh, act can just leave the room. It can, it can create a huge spike really quickly, and it all comes rushing to the, f- to the foreground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like in my experience, it's a very challenging process to actually go at a pace that would have the room stay within the window. And if that resonates, a question I have is there's such a pull in those moments for it to go red or it goes in, you know, it goes either up into the hyper or the hypo arousal. It seems like the, it goes there very quickly and it's so difficult to pull back from the brink. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that resonates for you, but, but I'm curious why that would be around conflict? Why is it so hard to kind of pull back from those edges or the thresholds of the window and stay? It just seems like it goes into shattering or chaos really quickly. Oh my God. I love how (laughs) precise and intelligent these questions are. I think about this all the time and I have two answers that I'm going to try to make succinct. So the first level is um, I think what almost any mediator would say um, or conflict resolution practitioner, which is that um, no matter how small quote, small, um, a conflict is, we are going to go into a bit of a life or death um, um, felt sense of like being Mm. in a life or death situation because um, that's just sort of what conflict signals in the brain and the nervous system, right? So even when we're not in a life-threatening situation, actually, um, we are going to flip. Um, A part of our brain is always going to be thinking survival, survival, survival. And what we know, of course, about the limbic system and the nervous system are that they are much more powerful in terms of generating an internal felt sense than, say, uh, the prefrontal cortex, (laughs) those other parts that are responsible for executive function. So, you know, um, 
what a teacher of mine in conflict, Betty Priest likens it to is riding an elephant, right? And so like that mindful part of ourselves is the elephant rider. And then the emotion that feels like we're going to die is the elephant. So that's why it's so hard. But the second piece that I will add to, um, to what Betty says, um, I think also Betty Priest is referencing maybe Jonathan Haidt here, but what I'm going to add to that is there's a collective piece. So Hmm. um, when we are distressed, the somatic theory holds, um, we do this thing called an attach cry, right? So as we're sort of rising out of our window of tolerance, we'll turn to another person and be like, help, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, the infant call, uh, you know, cries to call for its mother. At work, I turn to my coworker and say, did you see what the boss did to me today, right? And um, uh-huh, sometimes yeah. this happens on a verbal level, sometimes it's nonverbal, but we are hardwired Um again, this is a theory coming more from like somatic schools, right? To do this attached cry. And we are hardwired to attune to it as human beings hearing someone else in pain. So when we're in these rooms and someone says a word that is, you know, politically inflamed, um, makes a misstep, does a microaggression, um, or, you know, um, maybe conversely names a microaggression or names them like an oppression happening in the room or anything like that. And um, what we're going to do is triangulate. The attached cry will go out right? White women will start to cry is sort of like a classic example, uh, you know, in anti-racist discourse. And then everyone in the room will go, I have to take care of you. Or, you know, maybe conversely, I as a person of color might say, I am being harmed by the racism in this room. And every person of color is going to go, yeah, we're going to protect you because we're hardwired to do that. And so it's really key, I think, for people who are um, holding themselves out as facilitators, teachers, leaders, space holders, mediators, whatever, we really need to be responsible for being those bodies in the rooms, right, metaphorically and literally, where we're able to co-regulate. So, wow, I feel the surge of, yes, I want to you know, jump in and protect, and I can do that, you know, but I want to do that in a way that is generative, that hangs on to relationship instead of saying, yeah, we're going to destroy the harmful other that is hurting my pal or hurting me. That really resonates with the few experiences I've had where a group has moved through something that's come up around, say, race, gender, and other identity that has been deeply evocative and painful. The, the times I've seen it actually uh, move towards or stay within a window of transformation seems to be when, as you just said, that the people that are quote unquote holding space, my brother. Who's a, he, he often laughs at me. He's like, what do you mean holding space? Like, what does that actually mean? But, you know, the people that are basically in charge of the containment or leading, if they have wide windows, if they have a capacity for deep regulation in those moments, it can somehow, you know, keep, keep the room together on one level. The room sort of starts attuning to that mm-hmm. person or people mm-hmm. as a, a psychobiological regulator exactly. in that moment and that can hang with complexity. And I'm wondering if you could have, do you have any, I don't have many examples, honestly. And I'm wondering, do you have any examples you could talk about either in interpersonal conflict or in a group space where you've felt a group, you know, move through or integrate some form of trauma? Um, I had, do you know, I don't know if you know Thomas Hubel, 
Um, he was familiar. He was just on the podcast recently, and he's someone who's doing collective trauma work in wow. some pretty intense regions. And I asked him, like, what do you, what can you give me an examples of times that groups actually are able to integrate and metabolize uh, trauma instead of just splintering? So I put that to you. I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have? Can you tell any stories, or are there any examples of? times where you're like wow we hung in <laughs> we made it on the other side <laughs> oh man well it would have been much easier to answer the question if you were like do you have any examples of when that didn't happen <laughs> well you can do, go down that road too if you want uh oh no I, i'll just say i got into conflict work because i had seen so many examples of yes where the room splinters um and the center doesn't hold and by the center i actually really mean the leaders, teachers, facilitators, right? Um, uh, because right, when we right. look for co-regulation, also we look for powerful people. I think it's like a bit of a looking for a parental figure instinct in us. So, you know, the way the leader goes is the way that other, everyone else will go, probably. So I <laughs> I used to work uh, a lot in pediatric uh, trans mental health, so trans children and uh, adolescents. Um, and we did a lot of groups um, for parents and caregivers of trans young people. So, and I actually still am involved in this kind of work like a fair amount. And so lots, most parents of trans young people today are going to come into any kind of group program with a lot of anxiety and often some rage, <laughs> right? Anxiety is my child going to be safe, rage, like I can't control what's happening. And I'm really upset about that. And I remember this particular moment where, you know, we're, we were taking these parents through a psychoeducational group um, and then conflict came up. Um, so some of the parents in the group were saying, well, this is all bullshit. <laughs> like, you know, you're, you're telling us that our kids should be having huge medical interventions on their bodies and we should just step out of the way and stop being parents. And other parents were going, well, that's transphobia, actually. You're transphobic parents, right? And, you know, it's, it was so deeply inflected because no parent really wants to be told that they're doing parenting wrong. And that essentially right, of was course. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. everyone was telling everyone else that they were doing parenting wrong. Um, and I remember having like the freeze moment. It happened to me. I was like, oh no, I am disengaging. And uh, my co facilitator, who's a really great facilitator, was able to like step into the center of that and be like, okay, like, whoa, you know? So some of us are really afraid about what is going to happen medically to our children. And some of us are really afraid um, that our attitudes might harm our children. Raise your hand if actually you are afraid of both of those things. Wow. Everybody raised their hand. Wow. <laughs> <right>? wow. <laughs> because, and, and that moment, what clicked for me was okay, so my co facilitator was breathing, <laughs> acknowledging the emotions of the collective, like doing rain, but like on a collective level. Yeah. Um, and doing this really cool thing that I think is very rarely acknowledged in group process work, which is that. Like, um, we're sort of a macrocosm of a singular mind when we are in a group. So when, we're, when, we're, when, when a group is splintering into polarities, actually, probably a little bit of the other side, at least, is in us. So if I'm like, um, oh, you know, social justice, and I'm a leftist, and I hate right-wing people, there's probably a little bit of a right-winger in my heart. Um, and... I could probably de-escalate that if someone was able to co-regulate me and validate first that my concerns as a leftist are really important and also validate that I don't need to really flip out um, because the little right winger in me could also be held with grace. Um, and that means that maybe I don't have to work so hard to attack right wingers in my immediate vicinity, which is not to say we can't be fervent or have strong political beliefs, 
but it does open another doorway to how we can do uh, conflict or disagreement. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I, I, this is where I was one of the places I was hoping to traverse with you. Um, and I have Ooh. a question for you about it. I, I hearing about this move or intervention that this facilitator made, that's really powerful. I hear it to enter in, as you said, with some mind, with rain, with mindfulness to take the breath, to regulate and to somehow c- create a sense of collective, I don't know if agreements the word, but anyway, just that it served the collective. It sounds like it got people back into the window of transformation. Mm-hmm. And I have a question for you about uh, nuance. Yeah. And, and um, that to me seems like a powerful moment of being able to quote unquote, understand both sides mm-hmm. or to, to, to deeply validate mm-hmm. concerns on both ends of a pole or a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, and I have seen uh, over the last couple of years that there's moments where when someone comes in and is attempting to, uh, let's say a facilitator is attempting to, to validate both sides to create some cohesion, the, they're accused as, of both sidesism. Yeah. Yes. Right. So it's like nuance in some ways has become a bit of a dirty word in certain circles that I've been in. Like, no, you're actually getting away from, you know, there is an other, like we need to be firm. And um, it seems to reduce itself down to a brittleness of, of, a, of a right, wrong thinking. But I also understand times in certain approaches to transformative justice where it does make sense. We do need to have the binary and actually there is a line to draw on the sand. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, how are you thinking about nuance these days? And it's <laughs> just a small question, but, you know, I, I'm just noodling on this in a bunch of ways. And I, I thought, oh, I'm really excited to ask Kai how you're thinking about this. So I struggle with this question a lot um, inside myself. It keeps me up at night, really, because um, I think <laughs> um, as a writer over the past five or six years, I really sort of established a brand as like a nuance girl, you know, quote unquote. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I was really like, oh, you know, yes, that's important, but let's add a complication. Right? <laughs> let's, uh-huh. let's slide another thought in there. And and that worked out really well for me, actually, as a as a career. And it also, you know, was truly where my heart was. And 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 I'm hearing and growing now. I think around sort of an argument that you said, uh, you you sort of phrased, which was, well, both sides ism is, uh, you know, actually can be an impediment um, to working toward justice, or even towards working towards resolution. And I really feel that I think, especially in maybe like an academic or sort of um, dilettantism style of both sides where we're like, well, yeah, but also have you considered this? Like racism was bad, but have you considered that, you know, maybe colonization was maybe good, which, you know, I I would strongly disagree with. Right. So, um, yeah. So here's my thought on nuance is it's not a tool for all times. And I'm really learning and I just have a whole session with my own conflict coach about this, like where I was like crying and like processing some big stuff like um, as conflict resolution practitioners or therapists or like professional people who are usually in the middle of stuff, right? We need to let go of the idea that we are going to hold hands, bring people together and sing kumbaya. Like sometimes that will happen, mm. but often, especially with the big stuff, like really big stuff, collective trauma, racism, genocide, 
often that will not happen in the way we think. And we need to let go of this idea that ADR, uh, that alternative dispute resolution, will in some way prevent the scary thing from being said or prevent the scary thing from happening. And for mm -hmm. a lot of us, honestly, the scary thing is I don't want to get called out <laughs> or like, I don't want someone to have a big fight in the middle of a room and everybody to cry. Actually, if there is a huge trauma underlying something or like if there's a big conflict brewing, the thing will get said, the scary mm -hmm. thing will happen and we're just going to have to be in it. And so when we, so I, I think my my conclusion is, we can't use nuance as a way to try and prevent scary things from happening. We cannot use nuance as a way to restrain or tone police. However, I think it is our job as people who intervene in any kind of way to um, do some deep inner work around like when we're getting pulled into different poles of a conflict to be able to see everybody for like their, um, for the reasons that they might be entrenched in a particular side of a conflict, and then to use nuance to remind people about where they might want to go. And so, you know, when I do conflict resolution, I try not to say, have you considered this other person's point of view? Because you might be wrong. I try not to do that as much as possible. I do really try to say, so your rage is big and that is real, or your grief is big and that is real, or your grievance is, is important. And where is it that you want to go in the process of this conflict? Like what kind of person and relationship do you want to end up with and being? Um, and so that's important for uh, any kind of peacemaking process because then we can, we can really ask people like, well, yeah, we should probably name big scary things. And what is it we're seeking? Often when people are naming big scary things, what they're kind of saying underneath that is, I want you to see me. I want you to hear me. I want connection the way I deserved it. Um, and well, there's some ways to say that that are more effective than others. There's a way to process that that's more effective than others. And then some people are saying, well, actually, fuck you. And I don't want a relationship with you. And that's fine. But then maybe we shouldn't be doing a mediation, right? Because maybe that doesn't serve anyone's purpose. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does to me, because first I hear like some clarity about what the process is for. And what yeah. I appreciate you saying is, I can just imagine you as a strong facilitator here as, as, as helping people connect with how is it, what's the bigger picture here? How do you want to be in life for you or your community? And, and then how would that translate to this moment, to this conflict? And I really appreciated what you said about that there could be an expectation by facilitators that the scary thing uh, is likely going to happen, that that might actually even be good news in a conflict. Often it is good news. It, you know, like it makes me think of my trauma work. You know, when I'm training a lot of people in the trauma-sensitive mindfulness work, a lot of times I'm reminding myself and others, mindfulness will reveal the trauma. Yeah, it's sort of Yeah, and it's not about just trying to keep everyone comfortable or be in a practice of avoidance. On the contrary, it's building the container as, as you said earlier, to be able to handle those bigger emotions in a window where they can be metabolized. And so when you said that about, it made me think of trauma in groups, like, right, conflict is scary because often there's a lot of trauma embedded or baked into conflict. And so if we're revisiting it, it might bring up those memories of someone wasn't there for me, or I really felt unsafe at a profound level. Mm -hmm. And it made me think of, I want to see if this is uh, how, if this rings true to you, that the job of someone who's a conflict facilitator or leader in your role is really to almost steer people back 
into the heart of a conflict, but have them stay mindful or stay more online during that process so that the system doesn't get completely blown out. Does that, I don't know, does that resonate with you about like part of the role of, of, of facilitator? It absolutely does. And the two tiny things I think I would add to that are first that so anyone who is a leader of any kind of group of people is a conflict facilitator. And most uh, leaders right. hate that and avoid it, right? Managers, directors, how many nonprofits just fall apart because managers can't handle a conflict like most of them, right? So if you are a leader of any kind, formal or informal, it is your job to be some kind of conflict intervener. Um, you know, maybe some more often than others, but we have to be able to do that. The thing that you were just talking about. And then the other piece I would add is, so it is our job to bring people into conflict, into the scary thing without yeah, it getting blown. And we create reparative um, experiences that way because then, you know, hopefully people experience a conflict that is not entirely disruptive, right? Where they can be heard, at least to some extent. But if the person that we are trying to lead or the people we're trying to lead into that say no, then at least we want to help them make the mindful choice to say no. Ah, not yeah. no, because I can't and I'll die. No, because I cannot be here in this moment, but maybe in the future. No, because I choose myself. No, because I choose boundaries. No, because that, that person doesn't matter to me. But it's the choosing more than the doing that I believe is trauma healing. Mm, that's really, I, I hadn't thought of the distinction of those two no's. Like a no from what I hear, like a more reactive or uh, maybe trauma-based place versus a grounded present moment boundary that says exactly. no, 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 not for me or no, not right now. That's exactly. so different. I hadn't thought of the difference of those two. Oh, well, I'm happy to bring that in. I think <laughs> yeah. all the time I'm just obsessed with it. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. I'm wondering, Kai, could you, um, I'm wondering if I could ask you about your writing. Yeah, I mean, we could keep going on. I, I know I love uh, this conversation about mindfulness, trauma, and conflict. And then when you were talking about your writing and you talked about what I heard is creative complexity in some ways, like what you're holding there and not just falling into both sidism, but really just trying to be creativity and art to me feels like it, it serves complexity. And, but I actually, you know, and I've seen some, but other people won't have seen or know about your writing. So could you talk about your, either your creative process or what it is that you're writing about these days? Well, I don't know what you mean that people might not have seen my writing because actually um, I think JK Rowling just came in like a little bit underneath my sales figures this year. Uh, I joke, of course, I'm an indie. So no, um, my writing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate this question. So, um, I'm just like, <laughs> my whole career doesn't make any sense. If you think about it, <laughs> like from an outsider's perspective, it only sure. makes sense to me, but like my writing is just sort of, it follows my own process. So I've written, uh, I wrote a a fictional memoir, <laughs> a memoir of a character that's not exactly me. And then I uh, published um, a book of poetry and I published a children's book. And then this book of transformative justice related essays called I Hope We Choose Love. Um, mm. So all wildly different genres. Um, but again, it made the links made sense to me. And um, I mean, I'll focus on this book, I Hope We Choose Love, because I think it's most relevant to this conversation. The other books Please. are good, too, by the way. Yeah. Emma Watson chose my novel for her feminist book club. This is my giant claim to fame. Wow. Yes. Claim it. Claim it. <laughs> I have to brag where I can brag. But um, I Hope We Choose Love is what got me started on the path to um, conflict resolution practice. Um, and I wrote that book in response to some really intense transformative justice initiatives that in my perspective went pretty wrong in, in my community of, 
uh, queers and uh, activists in Montreal, Canada uh, at the time. And I won't go too deep into the details, but what I will say is, for me, the nuance that I felt I had to insert in the conversation was not both sides-ism in the sense of I didn't want to consider the other side. <laughs> like, I, I didn't want to, quote, even humanize the other, although I think that's a good project. But I wanted to humanize me, myself, and people around me whom I perceived as getting harmed by some pretty intense transformative justice actions. And so I, I'll just be clear and, and say what I mean. So social justice as a movement, like any movement, can be swept into like a high fervor of emotion, right? And there's all kinds of neurobiological and trauma-based and also justice-based reasons for that. Uh, not to say that's right or wrong, like let's practice some non-judgment. But the um, one of the consequences of that is we, when we lose nuance, we harm people who we don't intend to harm, or whom I think that if we were if we were really being mindful about our values, we wouldn't mean to harm in that way. And so when I wrote I Hope We Choose Love, I was really thinking about the trans woman of color sex worker, like as a figure, but also like real trans women of color sex workers, who in mainstream social justice movements are considered uncouth, loud, dirty, violent, aggressive, boundary pushing. Um, and essentially like this, what this, like, um, all of these qualities make up is like the stereotypical figure of the trans woman predator. And over and over again in my communities, I saw trans women get called out sometimes for things that were pretty serious or sometimes for things that honestly seemed trivial, um, and then hounded by the community. Um, and by hounded, I mean like harassed, physically beaten up, um, you know, kicked out of jobs that were precarious to begin with. And I saw women who were really important to me um, actually go into psychosis and attempt suicide more than once. And that struck me as like, oh my God, what's happening? So I did a ton of research. This is around 2015, 2016. And I saw that trans women were writing about this trans, crazy trans women phenomenon, which is what happens when, you know, a trans woman gets a bit loud or visible in her community and then is promptly driven out within two or three years. Um, and what sticks, what stuck with me too was um, this trans woman video game maker, Porpentine um, Charity Heartscape. She writes that punishment is not something that happens to the guilty. It's something that happens to people who do not have the power to prevent it. And when I expanded my awareness um, through that through that lens, I saw as well that uh, black men and women also particularly get disproportionately punished in different situations. Uh, most of the imprisoned population are people who are powerless to prevent themselves from being punished. And when we use the, the logic of, well, we have to draw a line in the sand, some behaviors are not acceptable. And once you do them, we can dehumanize you. Then we lose actually what makes a social justice movement just. Does, do you see what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. that was the nuance I really felt I needed to bring in was that we needed to be mindful about what we were doing in the name of justice because we were in danger of losing justice. Yes. It makes me think about the just the challenges of transformative justice, of, of what it means. As you as I hear you saying, instances of dehumanization where um, it ends up reenacting a power over scenario inside of a movement and the pain of that. And it just makes me think of the intense degree of difficulty of being able to hold people and communities accountable while also humanizing at the same time. And it's so powerful. And so I'm, I just appreciate you naming that and giving voice to it in the book. And I'm wondering, what are you, uh, what have you learned since then at the publication? What are you thinking these days about how you're seeing, um, different communities 
work through instances of that kind of dehumanization. I'm just, it sounds like a really powerful um, piece that you put out. Oh, thank you. So, you know, I consider myself, (laughs) maybe presume myself to come from a lineage of thinkers that is like um, rooted actually in, in, in the United States, thinking around transformative justice. So, you know, I come to writing in, in some ways through Leah Lakshmi Piafsa-Samarasenha, who is like a friend and I would consider a teacher of mine. I don't know if she would call herself that, but, uh, you know, her, her work, she's edited a book of mine and like her work really influences my work. And Leah is really rooted, right, right like in, in the Bay Area, um, like Mia Mingus and the transformative justice collective um, kind of thought. And then I also find myself influenced, but I'm not, you know, as much directly in contact with the work of Miriam Kaba and Shira, Shira Hassan, um, you know, folks working out of Detroit, that sort of thing. Um, and that conversation around transformative justice has really evolved in the past five years. I think um, in part because of interventions um, people have tried to make along the lines of, of the one I've been trying to make too, which is like transformative justice. In doing transformative justice, we cannot reenact or we should not reenact a power over a dominator structure, right? And that is really hard uh, because we are engulfed in like dominator structures. We're, our thinking is shaped by punishment-oriented justice. And, you know, I've circled around and around and around um, some of these really intense dilemmas uh, or polarizations of, well, we have to hold people accountable. Well, isn't holding people accountable reenacting like a kind of colonial power over, particularly when we do it in a punishing kind of way, right? We have to believe survivors. Well, no one is introduced to violence as a perpetrator. We have to um, have mercy and forgiveness and ways back into community. Well, shouldn't we center survivors, actually, and and their safety? These uh, dilemmas that we circle over and over and over again. And... So I started to formally study conflict resolution and mediation in like university settings because I wanted more theoretical background. I wanted to be able to think deeply, but then also bring in somatic and meditative tools into this. And I think what I'm landing on is, and this is not like by any means like a finished conversation for me, is, oh God, <laughs> hopefully not in a both sides kind of way. We have to be able to land it in both in a both and space, right? And I'm making a little hand gesture here that's like an infinity symbol, which I draw on a lot of my maps these days, because we have to be able to weave back and forth between the truth of we do need to hold people accountable. Well, I don't know if we need to hold people accountable. I don't know if I believe that I need to hold people accountable. I know that I I am driven to keep people safe or that I'm driven to address violence and harm which is maybe a bit different than I'm going to be the person who holds others accountable, like a sheriff or something, right? Um, And we also really want to hold the strength of um, no one is introduced to violence as a perpetrator, and um, we're not going to be able to stop violence by doing violence. And I really believe that this is not a both sides-ism, because um, when we hold those two things together in tension, maybe in a bit of like a Jungian way, when you hold two inner, inner poles in tension, if you look at them long enough with real deep authenticity, um, both internally and in groups, I believe this forces us to find another way. Like we actually take a step forward um, and start inventing tools and processes, right? And I mean, let me just be like, give a practical example. Like I hold intention all the time, the idea of abolitionism, which I'm pretty hardcore about. Like I, I believe in prison and police abolitionism. I believe in punishment abolitionism. And I know for a fact that there are people who are so dysregulated, so traumatized that they cannot help but act in harmful ways over and over again. So let's hold those in tension for a second. Like literally I'm inviting people, you know, listening to this podcast, like think about that. You're an abolitionist and some people are not safe to be around. 
okay, if we can hold both at the same time and breathe into the intersection between those things, if we stay there long enough, does a third way emerge? Probably. Some of you are probably thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe we could like have an island that's really nice or people are free, but then they can't leave the island until, until they cannot harm other people, you know, or like maybe some people are like, well, maybe um, like a total revamp of the prison system to be therapeutic, right? I don't know if I believe in that, but it is a third way. Uh, these third ways start to emerge. Um, and that's what I really think about uh, your question, which I can't even remember the wording of now. Is like, um, we... We need, we need to start developing like the capacity to think not just outside of the binary, but like acknowledging that binaries help us to create new ways forward. Yes. Yes. I would love to stay in connection and conversation with you. I'll be excited to keep following your work here. I am really inspired by that, of the possibility. This is where mindfulness, I think, loops back in is the, the ability to stay with contradiction and complexity and seeming duality. And as you just said, that that third way that can emerge and that I think often emerges through creativity and art and collaboration and conversation. And I hadn't thought about the island, for example, but there's, I can, what are those third ways? And, and my friend um, is in a, has a group that they have a, I think it's called bad idea Fridays where they're just putting out, you know, there's no bad idea. They're allowed to put out all sorts of bad ideas, but how to iteratively transcend uh, a duality versus just collapsing into either. And so I, I really appreciate that, that you and others, I think that there's a, there's a longing mm -hmm. for that and, and what that could make possible for us in terms of justice. Absolutely. I mean, and I think meditation is at the heart of this, like, and, and creativity, as you say, actually, like, I do a practice, <laughs> I should have said this earlier, I do a practice, like, so I have a pretty serious meditation practice, and it only became this serious during the pandemic, and I don't know what that says about me. But so, so you know, I meditate in the morning, first thing, and then in the afternoon, and then in the evening, it's pretty common, right? And then like, just <laughs> have been, never been so good at my meditation practices yeah, right, now that right. I'm trapped at home. But um at least one of those sits is just thinking about a contradiction that's been oh, bothering wow. me. Wow. Yeah. And I really invite, um, you know, anyone who's listening who wants to try this to do that for like maybe a week or two weeks. If you want to just do it for a really long time, just for a really long time, create a contradiction that has been bothering you. Like come up with, like, let it arise. Right. Um, I should be compassionate to others. My boundaries actually are that I do not have to be compassionate to people who harm me. Um, I believe in abolitionism. Some people need to be kept away from society. Um, I I want to be forgiving. I want to be really forgiving. And I'm full of rage, right? Any kind of contradiction. And if we can sit with it for 10 minutes, 30 minutes without, without having the debate, like actually just holding them, validating them both, staying with both voices, what happens, what happens, what happens? Usually usually our awareness expands, right? And, and, you know, mindfulness prepares us well for this because, you know, if we're, if we're practicing it, we are technically supposed to be doing non-duality the whole time, right? So anyway, this is, this is a, a fun creative practice that I invite people to do. And I invite people also to represent their, their uh, non-duality or their contradiction meditations by doing vent diagrams. I don't know if you know vent diagrams. You're nodding, David. So that's where you draw a Venn diagram, but instead of like it being like a traditional Venn diagram where it's two concepts that are obviously related, 
one circle is one thing, the other the second circle is like something that is in direct opposition, and then you draw like an overlap. And, and this actually is like a, a practice that's used a lot in um, American transformative justice <laughs> organizing to represent how you know we have to hold those opposing poles at the same time when we're doing the seemingly impossible, but I also think imperative work of, of creating transformative justice. Mm. I mean, I've seen some Venn diagrams on, I think your Instagram, I feel like I've seen some there. And Oh yes, I'm obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to encourage folks to, to check out, uh, we'll post on the, on the webpage. I think we can do that to the window of transformation and, but then also encourage folks to see, um, to see just some of the different maps that you've been making. And yes, on Instagram. <laughs> Instagram is a good place. Well, maybe that's a good bridge. Do, do you want to, um, you know, anything that, anything else that we haven't covered that you want to say, or just, um, also letting people know if, if they are interested in your books or if they want to follow you, how can they find you? Oh, I love that. Thanks, David. Um, yeah, so, you know, I invite people to check out my Instagram, which is just at Kai Cheng Tom. So it's like at my name. And um, I use Instagram as like sort of a place to do my vanity photos like everyone else, but also <laughs> as like a bit of a teaching tool. Not so much teaching like I'm like I'm an expert because I know I'm not, but like um, showing people what I'm thinking about. And so you'll see like all these diagrams and maps about collective trauma, conflict, all this sort of thing on there. And, you know, I'm on Twitter, too. So uh, my handle is at Razor Femme <laughs> and my books can be found, you know, for any major retailer. But I, I, I really suggest independent bookstores <laughs> if you can. And I mean. I would also say, you know, I don't need to be found. <laughs> and I say this because, you know, I, I, I'm really thinking about some of those trans women of color that I, I was speaking about earlier and how they were driven mad, essentially, by um, community. And something that's really important for me to tell listeners is that often, because I'm a conflict person and like a former therapist and a bit of like a spiritual, uh, wouldn't say teacher, but I you know, teach meditation, um, people think I have answers. Um, I don't have answers. I have questions, right? I have questions. And um, and so, I, you know, on the one hand, I want to plug my work, right? Like I'm, I am, I, I, have, I have like a business, I'm a coach and a consultant and all this stuff, conflict mediator. Um, I'm developing a, like a model called Loving Justice, which is a somatic and spiritual lens on transformative justice. And it contains just like all the things we've been talking about over the past hour. And, and, and you don't need to find me. Like, it's not me that people need to find. Um, and at the risk of sounding incredibly hokey, you need to find you, like a listener. Like, you really need to find what emerges from the contradictions inside of you. And that's something huge. Like, whenever I go on a podcast or do, like, a radio or TV appearance these days, I just want to say, like, the answer isn't going to be on social media. Thanks, Kai. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and share it's it's i'm one of the things i love about this having the platform and doing podcasts is i get to reach out and have these kind of conversations so it's so great to meet you and hear more about your work i'm just really excited to keep following your writing and work and um, maybe come back into conversation down the road i would love that thank you i'm so starstruck by you david i read your book a year ago and i was like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sweet that's sweet thanks kai we'll talk soon thanks david That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Kai for joining us. 
If you have any suggestions of people that you'd like us to speak with, please let us know. I heard about Kai through one of you and really appreciate it. You can always write us at support at davidtrelevin.com. If you're interested in learning more about trauma-sensitive mindfulness, we have a free webinar on my website, which is at davidtrelevin.com. It brings together all of the best thinking that I've learned over the last 15 years about trauma-informed approaches to mindfulness and meditation and really happy how it turned out. So please check it out. And again, you're always welcome to reach us at support at davidtrelevin.com. Thanks for being here and talk to you soon.